Good morning, Vermont, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your host, Brad Wright. Hope everyone had a fabulous Christmas holiday yesterday. Family, friends gathering together along with dogs, cats, various reptiles, and rodents. Okay, we cover, I think we covered that. On the program today, we check in on what's happening in Lamoille County with all of the flooding that we experienced yet again just last week, we'll discuss a new floodplain plan with Seth Jensen, the deputy director of the organization. There are issues with housing, roads, and more. Uh, we'll check in with State Auditor of Accounts Doug Hoffer and examine the level of compliance with a couple of important issues, the state telecommunications plan as well as an update on dental therapy, and if uh, hopefully we can get to some tax increment financing discussions as well. The state of Vermont is being sued over a couple of gun control measures passed by the state legislature and now allowed to become law without the governor's signature. We will talk with one of the gun rights organizations that is taking on the state, citing the Second Amendment. And what should we expect from the weather now that we have passed the winter solstice? It's pretty warm out there right now. Climate change is happening. That seems pretty plain, but we'll talk with our old friend Gary Sadowski of WCAX about that. Uh, But we begin our conversation this Tuesday with Seth Jensen, Deputy Director of the Lamoille County Planning Commission. Uh, Seth, welcome. Thank you, Brad. Great to be here. Well, we appreciate you ha- having you on uh, on the day after Christmas, so thank you very much for being here. Also, we hope that you, the listeners, will uh, chime in with a question or two. Uh, you can call 802-244-1777. That's 244-1777 to ask a question to of, uh, uh, Seth Jensen, the Deputy Director of the Lamoille County Planning Commission. Seth, um, A few areas in Vermont were hit harder than Lamoille County during the July flood. Then last week, we got hit again. Oh, boy, it feels uh, a little like maybe we need to expect this kind of weather more often. Um, What is the county uh, changing its approach? Uh, How is it happening to, to how to react to weather when it happens like this? Sure, Brad. Well, I think to your your first point, um, the storm that we just had, the flood that we just had last week, uh, in terms of recorded floods, was one of the about the fourth largest uh, flood that we've had recorded since we've been recording the size of floods. The um, July storm was the second largest um, after the, the storm of 27, of course. So two of the four largest floods that Lamoille County has experienced have occurred within the past six months. So that suggests that in everything we do, um, planning for transportation, planning for housing, planning infrastructure, um, we really are going to have to be thinking about flooding and flooding in at times and, and sizes that we weren't really contemplating uh, 20 years ago. And that that presents a whole host of challenges. Um, And I do also just want to acknowledge um, a a flood of that scale in December is very different than a flood of that scale in July. And that 
um, you know, wading through cold water and then being in 20 degree weather is, is very, di- very different than the experience that that would be in July. So there's also a health issue and an equity issue, um, especially when we start looking at where um, housing is located and where um, goods and services are located and all of those um, kinds of issues. Yeah. Uh, so it's my understanding that there is um, a plan to, uh, is it to increase the number of floodplains or the availability of floodplains to try to mitigate some of the flood damage? Uh, is, that what, is that what's happening with, with Lamoille County? It, it is, Brad. Yeah. Uh, so following the uh, last round of, of major storms, um, in you know in 2011, um, Irene, the spring flood that really inundated a lot of the communities in Lamoille County, um, LCPC and the town um, started working to understand flood dynamics better, and also working with Vermont Department of Environmental Conservation, and have been able to identify areas where. Um, restoring floodplains, restoring wetlands can help reduce, you know, not eliminate, but help reduce some of the dangers posed by flooding. Um, LCPC right now is working with Fish and Wild- the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the town of Wolcott on some floodplain restoration projects. Um, we're exploring um, a couple floodplain restoration projects in, in Johnson as well, uh, which is as, as a lot of folks know, one of the communities that had a lot of impact both in July and last week. And the idea there is to find areas strategically located uh, where restoring the natural function of the floodplain will give the water more place to spread out and slow down um, before it you know, gets into a village where people are in harm's way. So uh, you mentioned Walcott. Uh, is that uh, the only place where where there would be uh, floodplain restoration? And when we talk about restoration of floodplains, are these former floodplains that have since been built on or or something like that? In some cases, they are floodplains that have been um, uh, built on. In some cases, they might have been disconnected the, the river what, and what we mean by that is there may have been some kind of uh, construction like a roadway embankment that prevents the river from accessing the floodplain um, in some cases it may have just been um, agricultural use that uh, isn't as, as, as effective at, at attenuating um, attenuating floodwaters um, to your question of is, is this just in, in Wolcott? Um, there's active work going on in Wolcott, but there are opportunities and projects either underway or complete or being explored in um, n- numerous communities. Uh, there's some underway in, in Johnson, um, and there were some that were complete in Jeffersonville, actually right in the village, that have been very effective at reducing flooding in Jeffersonville, um, and we're very happy um, about that. Um, 
yeah, I'll bet. Um, I uh, remember seeing uh, the video of uh, near the wrong way bridge on Route 15, um, yeah. and it seemed like everything was just inundated there. Yes. So the main stem of the Lamoille, uh was just inundated. Um, you know, the wrong way bridge was closed. Um, there was a lot of flooding in uh, Jeffersonville, um, flooding again in Johnson. Thankfully, unlike July, it seemed that, um, you know, where the flooding was impacting people, it was mostly impacting basements as opposed to getting into first floors, which is a big difference. Um, I do have to say that, you know, speaking with people, Leading into the flood, uh, you know, there, there's quite a lot of anxiety around events like this, understandably, from people who've experienced uh, these kinds of events now twice in such a short period of time. So this kind of work is also about, um, you know, re- restoring the communities and, um, you know, restoring people's uh, hope and confidence in their communities. Um, we're probably we, we are likely going to see more events like this, and the more we can do to be prepared for them um, and reduce the severity, uh, the better off uh, the region is going to be as a whole. You mentioned uh, health equity planning, um, so we get that sense of um, of the connection. Um, when people are facing, uh, you know, flood water uh, in the home, which can create uh, lots of problems, mold, uh, et cetera, even after it recedes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how um, land use planning um, has an impact on, on health of, of a community? Sure. So land use planning can have a lot of impacts in that, you know, as we were talking about, um, in in a in a flood or natural hazard um, has has major impacts in, in an acute way. Um, you know who um, can afford to live outside of harm's way? Who who can't? Those those are major issues that have been highlighted um, in a in a broader way. How we build our communities can impact, um, you know, are our children able to walk from their homes to the post office or library or school safely? Um, is there access to healthy food that is easily accessible by people? Um, are seniors, you know, safe in their their communities? Um, even things like uh, street trees have an impact on heating and cooling of, of neighborhoods. And so we're, as planners, trying to think about those issues more critically and thinking about um, how, how all of them play into uh, a broader, healthy community. Right. Uh, Don from Elmore is on the line. Don, welcome. And uh, what is your question for Seth? For, uh, oh, for Seth? I've actually got a couple. It's been a while since I've seen Seth. I'm wondering how much of the problem that we had here with the December flood was caused by the same problem that they had in 27 and that the ground was frozen. Uh, And there was no real runoff until 
the morning afterward when all of a sudden at my place, for example, the ground thawed and a lot of water went into it, but not the day before. And at the same time, I looked at the various tributaries and whatnot of the Lamoille, and it doesn't seem that there's a place where a large flood control dam such as you've got at East Barry or Riceville uh, is going to fit. But it would, I, I can't help but wonder if there's not some place on the Gihon River, for example, where a smaller one could be put in, the same thing on the North Branch, and down at the falls uh, below the Route 15 Bridge in Johnson near Ethiel Falls or whatever it is they call it, there as well. And I'm not saying that these dams would have to have water behind them all the time, keep them open, and close them when you need to catch it to slow it down. Uh Again, one large dam someplace, there's probably no place for, but it would seem that several smaller ones might serve the same purpose, and I'd be interested to hear what he has to say about that. Seth, what do you think? Well, um, thank you. Thank you, Don, um, for for those questions. I think to the first question of, you know, the ground being frozen, um, you know, I, I think that folks are going to be studying this flood for a while, um, but I suspect that Don has, has a good point uh, about um, the ground being frozen and not able to attenuate um, water in the way that it might. Um, and we had that a similar issue in July with just the high groundwater uh, from past rain. Um, the tributaries were definitely roaring uh, it, during the December flood in a way they weren't in July um, from snowmelt uh, up up in the hills and mountains, that definitely contributed as well. Um, who the question of flood control, uh, flood control dams, uh, other flood control infrastructure. Um, right now, um, LCPC is looking into uh, ways to expand the, the modeling we've done on the main stem to um, identify any and all alternatives for um, protecting communities from flooding. Um, you know, permitting new flood control dams is not without challenges in, uh, in Vermont. Um, it is, you know, not something that has been studied on the Lamoille in, in great detail. Um, so I don't want to comment whether it would or wouldn't work. Um, but I'll say what, the same thing that um, LCPC said when we were looking at this at a smaller scale in Jeffersonville 10 years ago, which is that uh, we're at the point where, um, you know, we, we need to be talking about and considering um, any option and evaluating the science of, of if that option works from a um, human standpoint, uh, first and foremost, and then from the, the standpoint of um, – you know, impacts to the river and, and environment. Right. There would be a lot involved in uh, permitting a dam, uh, uh, any, any kind of dam, and uh, yep. the Department of Environmental Conservation, the Agency of Natural Resources would be heavily involved in that, I'm quite sure. Um, Seth, uh, speaking of Johnson and uh, flooding, I uh, wonder what is the progress about uh, bringing a grocery store back to where the old Sterling market was. Uh, Sterling's not coming back. I guess they've made that determination. Um, 
and I'm not even sure how how involved the planning commission would be involved in a in a private business, but folks need a grocery store there. Um, what's happening? Do you know? Sure. Well, that you know that is a great question, and it's about how the flood impacts and health equity that we were talking about before the break really intersect. Um, you know, Johnson has a very high percentage of older residents, very high percentage of uh, households without access to an automobile. And when that grocery store closed after the flood, um, you know, there's now not a full service uh, grocery store anywhere on the Route 15 corridor between Jericho and Morrisville. And so that's a, a huge gap, a huge gap for the region, a huge gap, especially for Johnson. Um, you know, the what it is a it is a private business trying to make um, a private business work. I I do know that um, they are looking into various options for uh, flood protection at the site. Um, you know, LCPC is is offering assistance with the the data and modeling uh, we have done um, to understand the, the flood dynamics. Um, the state has um, tax credits and other uh, programs available to help move some of that forward. Um, and whether it is in that location um, in its current form, that location in a, in a renovated form or somewhere else in, in Johnson, um, it is very, yeah, very critical to get a grocery store back there. And I know um, Palmero has been working very hard on that. Um, and, and we have been sharing data um, about you know, flood dynamics with them, as well as, um, you know, some of the state's financial incentives uh, to try to get something there. Yeah. Um, I noticed that uh, uh, the planning, uh, all of the towns, all 15 towns in Lamoille County um, have taken some ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan Act. Yep. Um, is is that the kind of money that could be used to induce a, uh, a a grocery chain to to go into either the old Sterling Market or somewhere else? You know, um, that that has some. The, the ARPA funds have some restrictions uh, on them. Um, there, there, there are like there are probably some ways um, ARPA funds, uh, you know, can be used to support uh, redevelopment of, of, of a private business. Um, I know Johnson has been looking at um, ARPA funds they received uh, for for things like um, infrastructure, uh, especially trying to use infrastructure to create areas, you know, outside of the, the more flood prone areas. Um, the state also received quite a large of, amount of, of ARPA funds, um, you know, and has been using those uh, through something called the Community Revitalization Recovery Program to support businesses. Um, so there's there's definitely resources out there, um, and it's really important that you know small rural communities like Johnson um, have you know the capacity to access those funds. Um, and that's one of the things that LCPC is there uh, to do. Um, and definitely getting getting a grocery store back in that community is is an is an important um, use of, of of you know those kinds of state and local resources. Uh, switching gears a little bit, Seth. Um, 
we have all heard about the continuing saga of truckers <laughs> who either ignore the signs saying they can't get through Smuggler's Notch or they just miss them. Um, it seems unbelievable to me that this keeps happening year after year after year, but it does. Uh, what's the status of that? And is there a way to uh, get truckers to um, see the signs about about not going through the notch? Sure. Well, well, that's a great question. And that's actually one of the issues that I've been working on uh, directly since um, joining uh, LCPC. Um, so there was a big spike in trucks getting stuck in the notch, um, in, in 2020, um, ironically of all years. Um, and the agency of transportation, uh, as a result of that did, you know, a, a pretty comprehensive, um, study that led to some upgrades to signs led to, uh, some work with the truck company-specific GPS providers, and um, the, the number of trucks uh, getting stuck uh, has gone down from an average of eight to, since those signs uh, were, were installed, an average of, of about um, five. Um, the high was around 12 um, five years ago. Um, you know, it is a saga. It's... Um, there's a there's a degree of comedy in it at this point, um, and that you know it, it's hard to miss the signs. Um, you know there is a a challenge to of, of um, you know people are mobilized, rescuers are mobilized, getting somebody out from the notch. People aren't able to get through. So what do we do um, about it uh, at this point? Um, next summer, um, you know if resources are available uh vtrans is going to be testing and there and this is going to be a test um some barriers that are called chicanes uh down at the gateways on both the stow side and the cambridge side of the notch um and they're designed to kind of mimic the tight areas uh that that, that trucks experience um and uh see if that captures this last kind of, you know, last group that um, seem to either ignore the signs or um, not see the signs. All right, Seth, uh, we, we have to go. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Our guest has been Seth Jensen of the uh, Deputy Director of the Lamoille County Planning Commission. Seth, thank you for joining us. This is WDEV and Vermont Viewpoint. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm your host, Brad Wright. Doug Hoffer is the elected state auditor of accounts. The job that his office does requires a lot of research and planning and diligent work to measure compliance with state laws and regulations to raise concern when compliance is not met, too. Uh, the office also measures how well the state does with federal money that is sent this way and many other things. Doug will join us in just a second in order to discuss, um, first, the telecom plan for the state. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, 
Fisher, however, I do want to note that as a media consultant for a short term, uh, a short time rather, that I think was around 2009, I had a small contract with uh, State Auditor Tom Salmon, and a lot of what I did was to help raise awareness about an, uh, an epidemic of embezzlement cases among small organizations in the state, uh, and we'll also note that uh, that has subsided with uh, better oversight. Uh, but for now, Doug Hoffer, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? Thanks, Brad. I'm fine. How are you? Very well, sir, and I uh, hope you had a great holiday. Um, you have noted in your uh, in your uh, reports about uh, how the Department of Public Service, you believe, has fallen a little short in executing the plan. Um, you said your main concern is that the plan does not clearly identify recommendations for achieving Vermont's telecommunications goals and does not establish measures to evaluate progress toward those goals. As a result, there is no way to hold PSD accountable for achieving the state's telecommunications goals. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and why this situation is what it is? Well, thank you. Yes, uh, it was an interesting job. Obviously, telecom is a big issue and has been for over 20 years. I remember uh, initially Governor Douglas was the first governor to talk a lot about telecom, and he didn't get it done. Pete Shumlin didn't get it done, and now Phil Scott, uh, thanks in large part to an enormous influx of federal money, uh, sadly in part because of COVID, but some other legislative initiatives of the Biden administration, has an opportunity to really make a dent. And that involves, as you would expect, a plan. Now, the legislature has taken a number of steps. Uh, they created an oversight board, uh, which was responsible for assisting in the creation and development of the local CUDs, which represent a bunch of municipalities as a group, uh, partnering with uh, private sector folks. It, it's, it's a big deal, and a lot of money has gone out the door. But the plan, uh, which is a 10-year plan, but interestingly is updated every three years, the, the legislature itself, in the first instance, missed something. They did not explicitly require recommendations in detail, actionable recommendations, uh, nor did they require uh, performance measures or metrics. I'll get back to that. Having said that, uh, if you were, I think, uh, the commissioner of the uh, Public Service Department, I'm not sure you would need to be told to propose recommendations to achieve the broad goals uh, identified in the statutes, the relevant statutes. That's just something you would do in a 10-year plan, and they really didn't. They would say otherwise, but in fact, you know, the staff that looked over that, the existing plan, the 2021, the one that they're working on now will be out uh, in 24, uh, really didn't find any hard evidence of actionable recommendations, which is too bad. And furthermore, with regard to the metrics, uh, in response to our report, we always let the auditee or the entity that's being reviewed uh, comment on our work, and we usually include it in the report. In this case, we put it on our website. The commissioner said, as did the consultant that's assisting them, that they weren't required in the latter case by contract and by statute, according to the commissioner, to develop and produce performance measures or metrics. Well, you know, that struck me as very odd because, uh, again, if you're the commissioner of a department or the secretary of an agency and you're using taxpayer money, a lot of it, and you're hoping to finally make a dent in what has been a long-term effort on telecom, often misguided, a lot of money misspent. Uh, how else can we evaluate the success of the plan and your efforts without performance measures and metrics? And just because it doesn't say so in statute or contract doesn't mean that that's not best practice. 
A statute is a floor. At no point does the statute, in this case or any other, say, do the following things but don't do any more. I mean, if it's best practice and it's understood to be a standard, uh, then you should just do it. You shouldn't yeah. wait for somebody to tell you to do it. Um, when we're talking about the telecom plan, what what are the things that are involved in uh, that that consumers would use? Is it is it uh, better connectivity through broadband? Is it cell towers? Is it is all those things? Is it landlines? It's, it's all those things. Yeah, and uh, you know, as you know, in a rural state, certainly a mountainous rural state, it's been a challenge because for the people or the entities, I should say, that are already here, like Comcast and before that, uh, Fairpoint and its predecessor, I guess, uh, Verizon, and before that, New England Telephone, they change names all the time. Uh, it, there's an awful lot of people in Vermont who have not had access to what is considered modern broadband standards, you know, 100 megabytes up and down. And that's a challenge, and it's expensive. And those folks didn't do it because they didn't see a return on investment for having, you know, seven homes per mile or something instead of doing it in the city or in Chittenden County. So it, it involved uh, a lot of money. There's no way to get around it. There's got to be a subsidy. And, I mean, that, that raises some other questions unrelated to this particular job because how the legislature has decided to pursue this through the board and then the CUDs raises some other questions about where the power is and whether those community-based entities, the CUDs, are actually transparent and accountable. Uh, I say that because we did another job related to those issues, and the private sector partners insist on confidentiality for almost everything. So it's a challenge. But back to your question, obviously, connectivity is very important. Obviously, you have to have the fiber go down every road. That's it. Having said that, that's not the end of the conversation. That's the beginning. That at least gets it you know, close to your driveway. But the question is, can you afford it? And that is a, a goal in statute for sure, affordability. However, that's never been defined uh, by the legislature or the board or, uh, or the department, for that matter. And there are no recommendations about it other than in the 21 plan to say that the CUDs, they encourage the CUDs to address the affordability question. So we've got a long way to go on that issue. And it's a big deal. Yeah, it it certainly is. Um, And uh, affordability is uh, not the easiest thing to define because by definition it's kind of vague. But – is there do you, do you have a figure in mind for a monthly charge for let's say uh, a one no, gigabyte? That's not, that's not for me to say that. Right. Okay. I mean, and and it varies. It will vary depending on the location and the build out costs and the administrative costs and the services provided and all that stuff. And I'm not sure that uh, the legislature made the best choice in having all these CUDs because some of them have a much higher hill to climb in terms of making the financial case or the business case for their region as opposed to the one down the road. And I wouldn't be surprised if if in a few years some of these CUDs merge, uh, which would probably allow some economies of scale. Hmm. Um, And yet at the same time, we do seem to be making some progress Uh, in my community. uh, uh, Broadband in the form of uh, uh, fiber has arrived. Uh, Some people have it. Um, and there are of a number of different choices, um, depending on how much you want to spend and how much, uh, connectivity you think you need. Um, is Actually, there, hang, hang on one sec. I'm sorry to interrupt. The, the question of choices is an important one. Sure. You're referring, I presume, correct me if I'm wrong, to choices in terms of programming options from one provider. 
Okay. No, no. What I what I meant was um, you have a different level of of uh, speed. Um, right, but you only have one company offering that product and those services. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 there's a, a sense of, of of monopoly there. Yeah. Right, and and it's not a sense; it's real. Uh, there are going to be a couple of places around the state where there will be modest overbuilds by some of the big guys, but that is another issue that I think. It's, it may be too late now, unfortunately, but the legislature, and this is just me talking as a person. I mean, this is not the result of our work, but they had a choice at the outset. They could have said, let's just pay to string the fiber and then invite anybody who wants access to it to lease access. And then more than one company arguably could have uh, entered the market because they didn't have the burden of paying for the build-out. And the state or the public taxpayers would own the infrastructure, but that's not the way they went. So the bottom line is, having become a partner to a CUD, the provider, the private sector provider, whether it's Fairpoint or, or now called Consolidated or whatever they are, they are partners with these groups of municipalities, and they won't have competition. Hmm. There will be no competition. Right. Um, and that's the case, uh, it, it, what I've seen. Um, the other providers um, uh, don't provide the same level of service. Um, right. Right. Oh, they're uh, the traditional ones, either the old phone companies with uh, with copper wire, that sort of thing. So, no, it's it's complicated. It's not easy. I'm not suggesting it's easy. And yeah. This is not my world. I don't – I'm not a telecom manager or policy guy. Getting All back to the – review the plan and the statute that supports it. Right. Um, getting back to the um, the issue of accountability and 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 measurement, um, you included Commissioner Tierney's response um, uh, on your website, which defended her department's work on the telecom plan. But she noted neither the legislature nor the department has the requisite legal authority to compel achievement of the state's desired goals and policy objectives. Um, why is that? Well, why is that? It's uh, <laughs> Take yourself back to 1996 when Congress did the Telecom Act. What happened, it was a battle of, of huge and powerful interests. And what happened is the telephone companies lost and were broken up and told they had to share their infrastructure, but the cable companies were not. So the cable companies, many of which are now in this business as well, both uh, cell phones and so forth, uh, are free uh, of any state regulation at all. But I disagree with the commissioner that just because they don't have direct regulatory authority, as the state does over uh, electric utilities and, and in some cases uh, matters related to natural gas, that doesn't mean they have no leverage. As I said before, uh, because of the huge influx of federal money, the state has distributed hundreds of millions of dollars. And when you write checks, you have leverage, period. And I don't think they've made the best or optimal use of that leverage. And furthermore, if you're talking about how do we make this available and affordable to low and moderate income people, that's where the legislature itself, often at the suggestion or direction of an agency which makes recommendations, can create programs which are funded from one of a number of sources, as is true for telephone. You know, you can get very cheap telephone service because, in part, because of the Universal Service Fund and all that kind of stuff. And I don't hear any discussion about that at the moment. So, But my point is, the commissioner's point is both literally true but not the end of the story. 
I wanted to speak with you about uh, one of your reports includes a review of the dental therapy program at the Vermont State Colleges that both the state and the federal government have invested millions of dollars in and years later still hasn't gotten off the ground. Um, certainly, the, dema- the demand for uh, dental care in Vermont is pretty heavy, and the legislature understood that and appropriated funds. Do you have a sense of what happened here? Yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate story. It's Hopefully it's not done, and there's still an opportunity, but uh, the history is pretty straightforward. Uh, in 2016, the legislature, along with some advocates, uh, decided that this gap that you referred to, particularly in rural Vermont, but not exclusively, uh, really argued for a new professional designation, dental therapist, which was kind of in the space between dental hygienists and dentists. Because hygienists, of course, are very limited in what they can do. They can do a lot of good work, and they're very valuable to the to the practices, but they can't do simple things like, um, you know, like a tooth extraction or yeah. – right. So uh, it was – I think it started in either Alaska or Montana, uh, particularly on – or maybe Wyoming – on uh, Native American land where they could get direct access to federal money. And they thought, well, they have serious dental problems. I mean, we look pretty good compared to them. So they said, let's get a program at the local colleges and train these people and get them out in the field. And it looked like a good idea. Uh, so the people here in Vermont said the legislature created this new designation and assumed, uh, given the support that, that was uh, offered by the Vermont Technical College in the state college system, where they already have a hygiene program, that they would support it and help develop it. Well, here we are almost eight years later and nothing's happened. And, and the story is pretty straightforward at the outset. Uh, the woman who was the head of the hygiene program was very supportive and managed to raise a little bit of money from some philanthropies uh, to eventually hire uh, the person who became the director of the program. And her job, uh, in the absence of the program, which had to be created, the toughest part of it was getting accreditation. Any program like this uh, related to the medical fields, you know, they're, they're not only jealous of their space, but they rightfully want to protect consumers. And they want a program that's going to meet their high standards. So it took several years for this woman working with folks in the far west, Washington and elsewhere, who had been through this process to try to bring a product to her superiors within the Vermont Technical College that could be presented to the full board of the state colleges. And uh, over time, you know, a a lot of things happened. One, uh, which is a big deal, sort of a generic thing for them, was the the now still ongoing reorganization of the Vermont State College system. That created a level of of confusion uh, that didn't help, uh, not just these guys, but everybody. Also, there was a lack of consistent administrative support. The woman that I mentioned who was so helpful at the outset retired. Just that stuff happens. There were competing interests within the institution itself. Uh, For example, the hygiene program uh, might well have thought, well, yeah, this sounds okay, but what's it going to do to us? What about the allocation of resources? Are we no longer going to be a priority and so forth? Um, There was key staff turnover. There was COVID. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And it appears, and it's a different story depending on who you talk to, but it appears that at one point uh, this woman who had spent, I guess, four years or more in her position made a presentation and basically said, we are ready to go to the accreditation folks. And the college thought otherwise and put it on the back burner. And that was a couple of years ago. And and, uh, she has since left. Uh, She's gone out to Washington State to help run their program. 
Uh, and I don't believe, as of September or October, uh, they have not hired a replacement for her. And because of the need for the accreditation and the run-up to actually bringing in students, there's no way they can get anybody in for at least another three years, at which point it would be over 10 years since the bill was first passed creating this position. It's a tough story. Boy, it is a tough story. Uh, and it uh, looks like another black eye for the Vermont State Colleges. Um, there, uh, there's some money involved. Um, oh, yeah. Because- I, I, they, they raised uh, a little over $2.6 million. They have spent over $2 million. Uh, as I said, uh, the woman who was the director uh, was successful in getting a federal grant, which was four years at $400,000 per year although that did require a certain amount of match from the state of Vermont, which the state pretty much fulfilled its responsibility. And then they had some money from the Kellogg Foundation, from a group called Community Catalyst, the Pew Family Foundation, uh, Warren and Lois McClure Foundation, who were very active in the Chittenden County area and and a great organization, and the Dental Trade Allowance put in some money as well. I will say it's my understanding, uh, I remember hearing about it at the time, but I wasn't involved, that the dental community itself was of, of two minds about this. I think a lot of dentists thought it was a good idea, and a lot of dentists didn't. So it, it wasn't as if it was smooth sailing from day one. What does, uh, as far as the dollars that have um, been uh, given to um, this concept of a dental therapy program, um million has been spent, nothing's happened. What does accountability look like here? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, The good news is that some of the money was spent to upgrade and expand the facilities in their labs in Williston, where they have the hygiene program. So it's my understanding that although not all the equipment, like dental chairs and related equipment, has all been installed, they have purchased some of that, which is better that they bought it two or three or four years ago when it was cheaper than it no doubt is now, but it's not yet in use. Uh, second, they had to pay the salary of the executive director. Third, they paid an organization out of New Hampshire, well, it's actually by state, and technically that's part of its name is by state, Vermont and New Hampshire, to help them identify dental practices that uh, would be willing to train and work with these dental therapists once they're graduated. That's important, and they have all those connections. There also was the purchase of uh, other types of equipment, not uh, you know, heavy-duty stuff, but written materials and so forth, much of which will have to be uh, upgraded when the day finally comes. So you know, the money wasn't really wasted uh, unless you say, well, how come we don't have students? That's, that's the measure for sure. But some of it is there and available for use when the day comes, but not all of it. We've, we've burned through quite a bit of money. Was this going to be like a, a, a two-year program uh, or, um, or a four-year program? How do you, Can you just talk a little yeah, bit in the minute we have of, left about the vision for it, for students? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's a really good question. That's part of the internal discussion, and it's not a conflict, but the, the, the thing I haven't resolved yet within the Vermont Technical College and the state colleges, there were two approaches. One is to, to piggyback it off the hygiene program. The other is to make it a standalone. And I don't think they've made up their mind on that. Um, no doubt once they hire another director, they will hopefully resolve that issue and then get forward, move forward on the accreditation issue. But it can go both ways. In other words, there are some who say you don't need to be a hygienist first. Others say, well, why shouldn't you be a hygienist first? So it's, and, and I'm not here to judge those things, but that's part of the question, the outstanding question. Uh, 
Jeez, I guess it is. Yeah. Um, and I guess uh, somebody thinking about this who heard about this might have been really interested and then had nothing to go to. Yeah, and it wasn't going to be cheap, by the way, and it isn't cheap in, in other parts of the country. It's it's a fairly expensive proposition. Uh, it's a professional training program, and you get accreditation at the end, so that's part of the deal. I should say the one upside of this is that uh, the, the former executive director was in contact with, uh, I won't say colleagues, but cohorts in, in uh, Maine, and they expressed an interest if we had gotten this together. And since we haven't, I think Maine is trying to move forward, which would be unfortunate if they get there before we do, because that would make it harder to justify spending more money here. But there's nothing wrong with a regional approach if it's scaled properly and, and meets all the requirements. Right. Doug Hoffer has been our guest on Vermont Viewpoint. Doug, thank you so much uh, for being with us uh, for this half hour. We appreciate your efforts very much. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be right back after the top of the hour news. Yeah.